Nowadays, it's like the internet is reading my mind. There are ads in my Facebook feed for things I haven't searched for yet, but only thought about searching for. Creepy. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Today, we're talking about the double-edged sword of data mining on the internet. On the one hand, musicians, labels, and managers can find out who is buying what, where, and tailor their tours accordingly. But on the other hand, big corporations are making millions off selling the data they collect about you. Does anyone even care about this? And should we? It's all coming up on The Future of What. Can I have a taste of your ice cream? Can I lift the crumbs from your table? Can I interfere in your crisis? No, mind your own business. No. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to the founder of Resonate, Peter Harris. Peter, welcome to the future of what? Thank you, what or future? <laughs> you can just decide whichever. That's fine. Future <laughs> or what? Or Porsche. That'll work. <laughs> so, Peter, tell us all, my fabulous listeners and myself, what exactly is Resonate? Can you explain it? The very short version, the, the pitch outside the elevator as you're pushing the button is if Spotify was a cooperative. Ooh, co-op <laughs> streaming service. Yes, indeed. Okay, so what gave you this idea? Well, I've been sort of meditating on the question of what comes next for the music industry since 99, because I was building a lot of websites for clients back then, right as Napster was exploding, and then the RIAA was pulling out their lawyers. So it was just a constant question that everybody was asking, like, well, where's this thing going? And it was really clear that, you know, you, you weren't going to put the genie back in the bottle. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, it took the record industry quite a few years to catch up and realize, oh, wow, this actually isn't going away. <laughs> right. And we can sue, you know, single moms in Cleveland for downloading via Napster, but that's actually not going to stop digital. And so... It just was this obsessive question in the background. And I was also, in addition to building websites for musicians, I was also producing electronica. And so I was always experimenting with one platform or another. And, you know, just always felt like something was missing. And I think a lot of that related to the, the, the problem that everybody's had, I think, is that there was this sudden, absolute, monstrous change from scarcity to abundance. Right. And it just seemed like everything that's come up has never really tried to address what are the needs of musicians in this new paradigm. And so you, it, everything's like totally fan-centric or, it, or something that, you know, serves the major labels. And it just seems like the musicians have always been left out of the conversation. Yeah. Well, I think all of us would agree with you. Yeah. So it's just always there. It just for 15 years, it was, it was on my mind. And then... The thing that really started to shift my thinking to, well, maybe I should start something was summer of 2014, which was when Ethereum was having its crowd sale. Now, I don't know about your listeners, probably everybody's heard of Bitcoin. Right. And maybe they've heard the term blockchain. And so the blockchain is the technology that makes Bitcoin work. Right. And so around 2014, something called Ethereum was doing a crowd sale. Have you heard of Ethereum? No. Okay. So 
a lot of people call it blockchain 2.0 because it was the idea of the you could put software into this new technology and it could take a little while to explain like the intricacies you know the ins and outs but how this relates to the music industry is that you get decentralization in a really interesting way you know like napster was decentralized because it was peer-to-peer sharing but with blockchain you could do a whole lot of interesting things one of the the most commonly talked about topic for the music industry is the idea that you could have a single database that describes all of the metadata around a piece of content and as i'm sure you know you running a label you know how monstrously difficult it is to deal with the fact that every different service or every distributor they've all got different databases and sometimes they just don't have the right information absolutely because all those databases are highly centralized right and so blockchain a blockchain music database could make something that's decentralized and then where it also relates for us is that it's going to give us really true transparent accounting because when you write something into a blockchain database it's there forever it's permanent you can't go back and edit like you can edit your WordPress blog and change some words if you make a typo. With blockchain, it's permanent. And so that means that if you're an artist on our site, the records of what was played are immutable. They, they can't be tampered with. And so we hope that this will kind of lead to a new era of transparency and accountability and say, you know, all of these different rates that the other services quote and some people get paid this and some people get paid that and you know all this these variable numbers that we we could kind of put a, an end to that and say you know this is what was played and this is what should get paid we actually spoke to Sharky Laguana a mm-hmm. few like last year and it was right around San Francisco Music Tech summit and his, he's got that exact idea that that we should be paying artists more with the blockchain Bitcoin situation because you can then pay artists directly for exactly what was played of theirs. Whereas the current system with Spotify is kind of more this like artists get paid in this very bulk way, like based on total number of streams. And then there's a formula. Yeah, they're they're, they're really upfront about it in terms of what their formula is. I mean, he Sharky wrote a, a very interesting piece in the medium that there's quite a lot of dispute about whether it's actually like logically accurate or not. I, I referenced it for a year in, in writing various blog pieces. And then I, there was a point which I went back to it and I was like, wait a minute, does this actually make sense? I think there, <laughs> there, there, there's something about the way that he kind of guessed the calculations. But the general principle of what he's talking about is true. And I think that, you know, it's a it's a big part of the problem with the whole monthly subscription plan is that you have to from a for, from a service provider you have to reconcile these wildly different listening patterns of some people listen an hour a day and they listen to himalayan meditation music if there is such a thing and some listen you know 6 hours a day to like EDM right and you know as a service provider how you reconcile these wildly different listening patterns is probably extremely complicated for us we're breaking away from that altogether and doing it with this unique pay-as-you-go model and so what that allows us to do is one for fans that means no monthly subscriptions 
you just pay for what you play. And then what we do is it's called stream to own. And what that does is it starts off really cheap and then increases the more you like it. Mm. And so this means that all of the accounting around the plays is exact. It's precise. It's one-to-one. There's just no fudging the math right. on it. And and I think that that's a big part of the problem with these other services work is that the models just don't match up in terms of being able to pay fairly. And it's not that they're like trying to be evil or, you know, secretly are evil or whatever. They just, you know, it's a huge problem and it doesn't work. Right. So talk to us about your, because on your website, you talk about you, you figure it's going to take about $350,000 for you guys to get started. And the, the way people can do this is basically you can sign up for your first year for five bucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're, we're, like I said, we're, we're a cooperative and we're what's known as a worker consumer co-op. So you have workers that make stuff. In our case, it's the musicians that make content and the people that do all the programming and coding to make the site work. And then the consumers are the listeners. And so in all consumer models, or almost all, the consumers pay like a membership fee to be a part of the co-op. And so that's what we're doing. And it's just five bucks. That's the only like recurring fee. Everything else from there is based on what you want to listen to and what you consume. Right. And yeah, so what we're doing with the crowd campaign is it's it's actually a crowd owning campaign. Not a crowdfunding campaign. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> yeah, because you're you're basically prepaying in advance your first year membership. And so that first year is gonna start from when the service launches. We are gonna release some some things relatively quickly that's gonna help like with music blogs and and artists to start getting a early, you know, an early version of the player out on their own sites. And then it'll be like early next year that we launch the full service. We've accomplished a lot with just volunteers working on this for the last year and a half in terms of like design and the work on the blockchain stuff. And, but we, you know, the reality is that, you know, we we need to have a budget to be able to get some of these people full time because when you're working part time, when you just have free hours, it's, it's like, it's, it's definitely hard to, to keep things moving. Right. So you're looking for 70,000 people only to contribute five bucks. That'll get you your $350,000 of startup cash that you figure it'll take. And that's not, I mean, given how many people are, you know, subscribed to Spotify, 70,000 is really not that much to ask. Like, that's that's a pretty doable amount of people. Yeah, yeah, it is. And we might be able to even reduce that a little bit. We do have an investor option for those that have the ability to put in more money. They don't get ownership in the traditional sense, but it kind of works more like a loan. But uh, so that might make it so that we can actually get away with even less people doing the the $5 membership. But, But yeah, but, you know, given how oversaturated the market is with like, the greatest, latest <laughs> new music app, you know, to get that amount of people, we still do, we still need to reach a lot more. So, right, you know, it's a co-op. So really everybody's got to participate in getting the message out and really, whether you're a fan or a musician and you want to set up a profile and share it socially, or uh, if you're a label, you know, sign up and, and get your artist profiles on and then we can, you know, share it and get the word out. And that'll really help. Let's talk about that for a second because, you know, I've just recently talked a bunch about Spotify and how how that, you know, in that puppet thing that you saw, which I kind of am sorry I ever did, 
But I still stand by what I was saying in the portion that most people saw, which was that the major labels managed to get a payday after all by just moving venture capital money through Spotify and other services into their own coffers by demanding that Spotify give them tons, you know, huge advances, huge non-recoupable advances Mm. for the use of their music. So my question to you is how are you guys going to get Beyonce and Drake and Kendrick Lamar on resonate without giving Sony and Universal and Warner a huge, huge advances? Well, honestly, I don't think the majors are going to want to have much to do with us for at least a couple of years. I think we need to have a, we have some, we need to get some really major traction going before they'd even want to talk to us. But I think what, you know, our strategy is that we want to go after the 35% of the industry, which is independent. And we've got some good possibilities for accelerating that through some distributors that we're talking to. So I think that's an achievable goal, and that's a heck of a lot of content. And then the next stage from there, which is really, you know, that's proving ourselves and 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 showing that we're we're reliable, stable service, and we're you know paying out as we say we we intend to and all that. But what I think would be really interesting with those major label artists that maybe are in a contract that doesn't allow them to self-distribute. One of the things we're working on is a label for a day project. And so, you know, like one of these big artists that you mentioned, they could actually join Resonate as a curator and they could put together a curated playlist. And there's even a revenue sharing model for that, too, for the, so they could have a additional revenue for driving people to those playlists. And they can, like you know, basically sponsor and bring up the next generation of of artists. And and that sort of already does happen a bit in certain music communities, but this could be a way to sort of formalize that through curated playlists. And so then we're in a relationship with those artists on a a different angle. And so we're also looking at other kinds of content, whether it's video or AR or VR. We're close to talking to a bunch of different VR startups and stuff. So we've got a really long-term vision about other types of content beyond streaming. Mm-hmm. And so I think what could happen is that we could end up looking at um, doing deals with these bigger artists where it's it's totally direct. It's their content that they produce on their own. They own it. They have the rights to distribute it. Maybe it's not their existing major label catalog. But what I'd really love to see is that maybe we kind of challenge some changes in the contracts so that they could join the co-op independently and just kind of keep their resonate profile and streams to themselves. So we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> That's going to be kind of an interesting phase, but I think it's, it's really going to be a couple of years before that even happens because, you know, they've been pitched everything under the sun. So, you know, they need to see that, that something's actually real and stable and viable. I think it's good that you say that because I think that's one of the things that a lot of people don't understand. And, you know, you started this interview by saying that, you know, the music industry kind of screwed up in the age of Napster by, you know, suing grandmas instead of getting with the program. And I totally, I, I totally agree with that. However, you know, from running a record label myself for the last 10 years, you know, during the last 10 years, it has been sort of one of these things where so many services pop up, so many people hit you up every single day for your content yeah. that a lot of times for me, 
I just want to sit back and see which ones stick before I make any kind of commitment because there have been a lot of things that have come and gone that sounded really great, got a ton of press, people were excited about. And then just like six months later, they were like totally gone. So even with Spotify, you know, I'd put none of my catalog on Spotify for about a year and a half Mm. because I just was like, yeah, right, prove it. (laughs) And then eventually. Yeah, I know it. And that's 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 definitely a challenge that that we're facing, and and it's very understandable. And so it's this stage is really about having all these conversations, and you know, really hoping that people get inspired by this totally different model that it, it could provide a, a different way forward, so that there there isn't a separation between the platform and the people. That the people are the platform, right? And that's really. That's really what the whole platform co-op, hashtag platform co-op <laughs> movement is all about. It's about saying that actually we should be owning all of the platforms that we're using, whether it's Airbnb or Facebook or, or whatever. Right. You know, the fact that there are these just massively powerful entities that have total ownership and control over all of our data is it's a disaster and waiting. <laughs> you know? That's a really that's a really good point. And actually, Richard Burgess, the CEO of A2IM, just wrote an op-ed on exactly that topic about, you know, what are we really doing with these streaming services? What we're really doing is, you know, they're just doing data mining and they're just getting tons yeah. of data from us for basically free. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that we want to be a leader on. And that's where the blockchain comes in is that, it's going to allow us to have a lot more controls over the way data is used. And, you know, I really, really believe in privacy. And so, you know, when a user, a fan signs up, there'll be, you know, very, very strict controls about, you know, share some of my data or share none of my data. Right. So tell us one more thing about this. Have you guys given a lot of thought to the interface to like what it's going to look like, the app or the whatever, the web page, when people go to it? Because that was one thing I was really interested in when Spotify came out was I just thought it looked so terrible, their interface. <laughs> and I was like, no one's ever going to use this. And now like, you know, 30 million people <laughs> later or whatever, it's like, well, Bertrand was wrong again. But like, you know, I just, I was like, why would anyone use this? It just looks dumb. And so I'm wondering, you know, if, you know, people leave holes in the marketplace and that's, I feel like is one of them that you could actually make something that just looks a little bit better. Yeah. And and uh, that's, that's something that we're already involved with and working on and it's been happening for months now. And we've got a, a really brilliant designer from Paris named Timothy, who's made a lot of progress on this front and, it's kind of easy to innovate in this area because everybody's failing so bad. Uh-huh. A lot of it is driven for us is driven by thinking about the relationships involved between fans and musicians. And I think this is the the biggest failure of all the services. And it's because there's, you know, these, these major layers of insulation between the platforms and the, and the people, you know, like whether it's the, the labels and is in the artists, the platforms are working with the labels, not the artists. And so there's, you know, there's no conversation going on there. So we've really took it, taken a look at it in, in terms of thinking about what kind of relationships do fans have with artists? You know, what kind of things do they want to do and how do they want to connect with them? And so a lot of it's that a lot of what we're designing is being built around that. And then from the artist side, our ultimate goal 
and this this may be you know this may take us a year to get there but our ultimate goal is to really make it so super flexible that an artist could just go and say okay i'm going to drop a player and i'm going to put my ticket module over there and you know i've got some merchandise stuff and that's going to go in the lower right and they, they you know they'll be able to really do whatever they want with a really kind of modular design so it is very challenging to try to have something look consistent and feel consistent you know we certainly don't want to go down the myspace road with you know <laughs> where it just got totally out of hand right <laughs> for a while these horrid MySpace pages. But yeah, you know, having as much flexibility for the artist too to really present themselves the way they want to is is a super major priority for us. So there's a lot of challenge there, but I think we're really in good shape and looking forward to in the coming weeks, we're going to start really opening that up and start collaborating with a few specific folks, you know, to get feedback and stuff. So cool. if you're interested in that. Yeah, that's great. So the website is resonate.is for people listening who might want to become a co-op member and put in your five bucks and, and see this get off the ground. Peter Harris, the founder of Resonate, thank you so much for joining us on The Future of What? Glad to be here. Thank you for, for having me. I heard some secrets in the
was Willow Tree by Red Cabin. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to musician Kieran Gandhi. Kieran, welcome back to The Future of What. Thank you. I missed you guys since 2015. I know, right? The end of last year, we were, uh, we have to talk to you at least once a year or we get sad. <laughs> <laughs> so on today's show, we are talking about the double-edged sword of data mining in the internet age, which is, you know, obviously what we're all dealing with on a daily basis. And I wanted to talk to you because you have given some interviews recently where you're actually pretty positive about the use of data yes. for musicians and, and people who are helping musicians. So you want to talk about that a little? Yes, absolutely. I think when I think of data, any person when making a decision about their music and their art, I think it's always good to have access to as much information as possible. I think when I'm creating, sometimes I'll hit up drummer idols of mine and ask them, hey, do you think the drum should sound like this or like that? You know, in moments where I'm concerned. And so I think in the same way, artists should look at data as an extra opportunity to help them make decisions that maybe a couple of years ago they couldn't make. I think some of the interesting use cases that I'm hearing about are thinking about how maybe on Spotify or on SoundCloud or on Apple Music, they know on the back end when the user is turning up the volume or where in the song the user actually decided to click onwards because they got bored or what, what made the user add the song in the first place. And so if you use the first two examples, for me, for example, I've just been started singing. And in my singing, it's a risk for me because I'm a drummer by trade. So maybe no one will like my singing or maybe they like it when it's used as a sample or maybe they like it when I'm singing about something in particular. And so imagine if I were to receive that data and I could see which of my five songs that will be on the upcoming EP voices people loved versus hated. And I think that I now have this extra data point to inform my next album and I can choose to listen to it or not. I can say, Hey, this is a really useful piece of information that I want to write into my next album, or I can choose to ignore it, but it's there. And that's awesome. Do you at all worry? I mean, I think you might have a different attitude than a lot of musicians because a lot of musicians that I've known who get, get really depressed if they think that there's any music out there that they wrote that their fans don't like, you know, it's kind of like the comment section, <laughs> like people can yes. get really bummed by that. Yes. Yes, that's very true. So that's why in my analysis, I'm telling you that it has to be seen as a choice. You know, if you, if there's areas where, for example, I know my singing is the part where I want to improve the most, that's maybe the data that I'll pay attention to. Whereas if I'm proud of my drumming, I'm proud of my vocal percussion, I'm proud of the sounds that we're making electronically, maybe I won't necessarily pay attention to data that might inform my drumming otherwise. So I think it's about recognizing where you can use help and then accessing that kind of data that can only help you. And then on the marketing side, the side that's less about the actual art, that's fascinating. I mean, how useful to know that the reason someone playlisted my music is because it was on you know, the Funky Friday playlist or because their friend recommended it to them or because they were listening to MIA and then somebody said, oh, well, why don't you also listen to Madame Gandhi? She used to play the drums for MIA. And then someone went and added my song because of that. Because that way, when I go and engineer my marketing and decide where I want to spend my money, I'll know because I have a feedback loop. So that's completely on the business side. That's an epic, epic thing for artists. And that's where, you know, the shift from the old model of CDs and vinyl into Spotify, Apple Music, SoundCloud, et cetera, is, is enormously powerful. Right. Because it really does give tools to 
artists and their management teams, their labels, whoever else is trying to help them. I mean, the thing that I've heard the most often is probably that that data can be useful in planning tours because you know where your stuff is selling, you know where people are listening to you. Exactly. But you're right. It can also absolutely, I mean, I'm, I am fascinated by that. I would love to know if there were reasons, you know, yes. if you could say, you could, you could say, oh, look, that person, like, let's say read an article, an interview with me, and then went yes. and clicked through and bought my music. Yes, you're stimulating me so much. That's why I love chatting with you. Like, that's exactly correct. Because imagine if I have someone who has a very unique background in that a lot of my music career, my music inspiration has been launched because of my work in gender equality and in gender liberation. And so a lot of people actually find my story about the marathon or my story working to combat period stigma, or I was just speaking at the UN last, uh, last week. And then they'll stumble upon my music. So it's useful for me to know, is the poll that the song is really good or is the poll that people are compelled by my story and they want to know someone, what does it look like when someone is really passionate about activism makes music? What does it sound like? And, and that's great. And I think, you know, artists don't like to talk about business because it corrupts something wonderful and pure. And if we don't use the word business and we instead think of it as value, I would imagine that any artist would want the most amount of people listening to their songs and then getting inspired by their songs. And if that's the mission, if you want people to feel your music and to change lives, you do have to actively be conscious about how you're going to get that music to them. So if I told you now we have these magic tools that can enable that mission further, why wouldn't you pay attention to them? Absolutely. I mean, we spoke to Dan Deacon not that long ago about just this. and Amazing. He's amazing. And he was saying that, you know, he puts his stuff out there on the internet in every way possible, including a link to a BitTorrent. Yeah. He puts it out there so that anybody can have access. And he's super smart about that. And and I wanted you to comment on that. And then I'll just say something after it. Anyone who is paying attention to how digital works and to how culture works, the goal should be ubiquity. And by ubiquity, I mean, you want to be everywhere. You want to be having people hearing the music at the access point that's most convenient for them. You want people to be writing about your story, celebrating the music, saying, hey, uh, fans, you got to hear this because it'll make you feel good. You want ubiquity. You want to be culturally relevant. You want to be contributing to something culturally relevant and saying something that's boundary pushing so people feel compelled to listen and pay attention. And those who are doing this thing of like, let's gate it up, let's give it to this person exclusively for a month, let's do all this, it's irrelevant. That's the old school model. Like when we had to work with like record shops where it's a physical location and you wanted to get fans lined up outside the door and create that concentration of excitement, physically that made sense. But then taking this same concept and exporting it to digital is asinine because the whole magic of digital is that it's ubiquitous. It can be everywhere. So why wouldn't you be? And that's such an, I love that as a topic because it brings back that whole thing about the internet, which is, you know, there's so much out there that it ends up becoming this sort of white noise in the background. Yeah. How do you as an artist constantly make sure that your music is noticeable and stands out from the rest. And that's the part I think that's such a challenge these days. I think for us right now, because there's so much, anytime that we notice that we're seeing the artists show up in multiple places, like if I see an artist pop up on my new Spotify on my like press social media and then a friend posts about it, that's like the alignment. That's like the star alignment that makes me go and listen to them because I'm like, oh, I saw that name here. And then I saw that name in a completely different context. And then I saw that name pushed by Spotify. So I'm actually going to go and check it out. And that's why ubiquity matters. I think the new name to the game is popping up in, in front of people in different avenues 
such that people think, oh, this might be someone who's moving culture. I got to pay attention. I love that. I want to ask you a question on a totally different tangent because we just had a really interesting interview with a guy that I think you might be really interested in. He's a guy who runs a new company called Resonate. Have you heard about that? Oh, yes. I've heard of this. Amazing. It's a co-op streaming service where artists basically are members and it pays using the blockchain and then Bitcoin system. Yes, of course. Of course. Brilliant. I love this for the tracking purposes. And I love that you can actually granularly track where your music is existing. I think that's the benefit of Bitcoin because you can tell the travel of the money. Mm -hmm. But not but. I think the other good thing about it is that Spotify is recognizing now that they have to give tools to artists and that they have to enable artists to have some sort of dashboard or some sort of connection to the platform where then artists encourage their own fans to go and listen on Spotify. And that's what Resonate seems to be doing by giving artists their own profiles and sort of driving seat. Mm -hmm. But the negative I see that all these platforms run into is the marriage with the old school model. Because right now, Spotify can't get anything through the door because the labels don't want artists to have that much flexibility. The labels want to control it, which makes sense because that, that keeps the labels relevant. But the second things get bigger, like if Resonate actually starts having teeth and gets bigger and bigger... I, I fear that the larger channels might try to put a blockade or start suing or all this kind of thing. They always seem to be slowing things down instead of innovating as a solution. And when you say the labels, I'm assuming you're talking specifically about the majors? You know what? No, I think in fairness, like a lot of the independent labels also, they don't come off as aggressive because they don't have as much money. So then no one really gets too mad at them. But the truth is that any label is still trying to find how to be relevant to artists. And so they feel, okay, well, you know, artists, let me control this for you. Let me upload, blah, 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 instead of allowing the artists to do that for themselves. If the label does it, then they also get paid. They can take a cut because they've done some work. Now, that said, there's value in that. Obviously, even myself as an artist, the more I can learn to outsource and have other people handle the logistical side of things, it's very helpful. But that's only true if the artist is in control. The second, there's an information asymmetry, which tends to happen if your business managers have the passwords to your Spotify login and know what's going on and you don't, this is where most artists get taken advantage of and this is what the labels historically have thrived on. Anyway, long story said, it sounds like Resonate is actually trying to improve this. Yeah, and that was what came through in their conversation with us is definitely that they're trying to make this more beneficial to the artist who is coming from the perspective of benefit to the artist rather than benefit to the tech companies, benefit to the fans, which have been in the past sort of where these things have started out. Okay, but every tech platform says that. Every tech platform says, oh, no, we're not the bad guys. We're here to build some of the artists. <laughs> that is but true. That's, I mean, that's also not true. Yeah, but that's also, that's also, we don't need to believe that in the sense that no one's having a malicious intent, but anyone who builds a big platform is doing it because at scale, if they can serve a large amount of artists, then that only benefits themselves and you've created now like a, a powerful wall. And that's what's happening with the big streaming companies. Like, now, if I want to distribute my stuff, I pretty much have to go through them because they've gotten big enough that my work can't really, like, I won't be heard otherwise. So, right. you know, everything starts small with good intentions, but as things grow, that's where all of the trouble starts. Even right now as an artist, I was just reflecting yesterday, isn't it baffling that if I really wanted to launch a successful career, I literally wouldn't be able to do it without Instagram, Facebook, Spotify, SoundCloud, Twitter, any of like Apple Music, it's it's amazing. I literally have to depend on them. One is for distribution and one is, you know, to get the, the marketing. 
Absolutely. And that's, but that's how, you know, capitalism works is, is we are given the channels. I wish that we could seize the channels of marketing and, and publicity ourselves, but that's not I how know. it works. It's so true. But you know, money Sad. follows culture and money follows attention. So at the very least, I'd like to think that artists who do have a unique voice are able to maintain their own control because people are, are following them and they're the thing, they're the ones creating the value. True. And I also hope that artists like you can be inspirational to other artists because one of the things that's great about you is that you do control your own business and you do control your own destiny. And a lot of artists really don't know how to do that. You know, a lot of times, because you were talking about the control by the labels, it's like a lot of times artists cede control to the labels because they don't actually, yes. they're not that interested. Like they don't really know how, know how or to do it. have I the desire. And the only, it's fine to outsource to someone. It's okay. It makes total sense. But it's only okay to outsource someone as long as you know exactly what's going on and you're the one telling them what needs to get executed. The second that somebody is doing it for you and you've lost control, now they have the power. And then not only that, they're depending on the fact that you don't know anything about how the money is flowing, how things are getting paid for, how things even got on Spotify. This is when a lot of artists feel that the business side of things and people who are on the business side of things are corrupt. Right. And that's the industry that I don't want. The industry that I want is artists understand the flow of things and the people they surround themselves with have enough love and respect for the work of the artist, but they only want to do good work to make them succeed. Right. And I mean, I have to say, ultimately, I'm on the same exact side as you. I would love nothing more than all my artists to be really proactive and really understand. Mm-hmm. I, I have, it actually causes more problems for me as a label when artists don't understand what's going on. Yes. So it's, you know, that's one yes. reason I do this radio show is I'm really trying to educate people and help people understand how this works because it doesn't actually do me any good to have my artists know nothing. <laughs> it really does That's doesn't. such a good point. And that also, because artists have been burned in the past, majority enter with a skeptical attitude, which when you are actually doing some good work, it can be very difficult because you're saying, no, no, this is a good thing. Trust me. And they're like, I don't trust anybody. Right. You know? <laughs> right. But you know, I think what you said, then it, I think as, as people who understand the business side, I was just mentoring an artist in LA last night over some dinner. And I told her, I said, listen, I'm going to explain it slowly and patiently to you if you want to hear it. And I think for us on the business side, especially women to women or, or you know, more vulnerable communities to other vulnerable communities, we have to slowly explain how things work and we have to share our knowledge to protect each other. It's true. And we have to do it multiple times and be willing to do it multiple times because that's yes. what I found is sometimes people don't hear it the first time and you have to yes. just keep going back. You can't get annoyed and be like, God darn it, I said that already. Why weren't you paying attention? Exactly. <laughs> and also to give some work, you know, I gave her some homework. I said, no, go on your Instagram and start paying attention. The ones who inspire you, the, the people who, artists who you want to be associated with or who you wish people thought of when they thought of you, like what are they currently doing? How did they run their social media? Because we are living in this amazing time where there's no rules. We're writing them in real time. And really the only thing we can do is pay attention to things that inspire us and things that are shaping culture. Absolutely. Well, Kieran Gandhi, it is always such a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on Future of What again. Yay. Thank you so much. I get so energized by these conversations.
slaps me that I can't handle you But yes, no, yes, no, yes Soprano by Shushu. You're listening to The Future of What. If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. We're talking to the CEO of A2IM, Richard Burgess. Richard, thanks so much for coming back and joining us again on The Future of What. Thank you so much, Portia. It's my pleasure to be here. So we're talking to you today because you have written an op-ed piece that is very exciting for some of us in the music industry and probably pretty shocking for a lot of other people. So I wanted you to give us the lowdown on why you decided to write this and, and why you thought now was the time. Somebody asked me to write an op-ed about a couple of things that have gone on recently, the DOJ decision to require 100% licensing for songwriters and, and publishers and, you know, just a few other things, the Vimeo finding. Into, and and, and I, I started to think about it. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, that I didn't really want to deal with it piecemeal because we're really, as I described it in the op-ed, under siege as an industry. And it's been going on now, I guess, since uh, 1999 when Napster launched. And whilst some indications are really good in the industry and streaming's on the upswing and we've got services like Spotify that are paying you know, pretty decent rates on their subscriptions, that we still have a fundamental problem in the business and that you know, music is out there available virtually either free or extremely cheaply. There are many alternatives and there are some sort of fundamental problems that exist in the marketplace that we need to get around in order to solve that problem. There's no reason why music should be free any more than gasoline or butter or bread or anything else should be free. Right. Well, that's what we think. Yeah. <laughs> so in this op-ed piece, you, I love it, you title it after the Naughty by Nature song, OPP, O-P-I-P, yeah, you know, free. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. And, and you talk about the cynical business model. Do you want to explain the cynical business model to us? Sure. The cynical business model is really how you, you, you squat. You, you see, what happened with Napster was, Napster came along and it was sort of a reaction to the music industry not dealing with the switch over to digital. And we should have, the industry should have moved sometime around 96, 97. It was a natural transition. It was when bandwidth started to reach a point where you could download an MP3 in a reasonable amount of time. People could listen to it. So, 
you know, the music industry didn't make that move when it should have. And so somebody came along and said, well, shoot, there's a much easier way to move music around. And that was Sean, what's his name? I've forgotten his name now. But anyway, the, you know, Napster. And so suddenly everything that, you know, pretty much had ever been put out on record was available online for free. And, and there were a couple of things about that. One is it was amazing that everything was available. You could find any B-side anywhere. And, you know, it was really very exciting. On the other hand, it really undercut the music industry in general. There were a lot of issues in the music industry at that time. CDs were becoming ridiculously expensive and artists weren't always being treated well by some sectors of the industry, the major labels in particular. And the ground was fertile for something like Napster to take off, and it did. And it was a, in many ways, it was a phenomenal thing because it was new technology. But what really unfortunately happened was the value of music apparently collapsed to zero. Now, it didn't really, though, because what happened was people still value music. And, and, and then later, what, uh, what we saw happening when YouTube came along was that corporations, large corporations would use music to attract eyeballs, earballs, whatever you want to call it, to, <laughs> to get listeners. And, you know, they realized music obviously is incredibly appealing to people. People would jump through hoops to get music. It's just, you know, as I say in the, in the, in the op-ed, it's catnip for consumers. So they're using music as bait to pull people in and to get people's valuable information, which they then are able to sell and make lots of money out of in various different ways. So the data mining, you know, the use of your information for targeted advertising and so on and so forth has built this amazing industry that started out as just YouTube and is now part of Google and, and it's made massive fortunes for them. But then what they do is they take that profit and they use it against the very industry that they're ex extracting the profit from. So not only are they taking the money that should have been made by the musicians and by the labels that are spending the money to make the music and to put the records out, but then they're taking the profits they're making from taking that music and monetizing it through advertising and through all the various ways they monetize data and using it to make lawsuits against the music industry, to lobby Congress, and generally to tilt the playing field against labels and, and artists. And so it's a pretty cynical business model, you know, and, and we've gotten to a point now where the music industry is up against one of the largest corporations on the planet. And that's a kind of an unwinnable fight at this point. If, you know, if it came down to money for money, we, we, the music industry is tiny compared to Google. And Google, you know, of course, I've spoken on this show before about Google's hand in the DOJ statement about the PROs and the publishing industry and the consent decrees. We have a whole show about that. But it does seem to be kind of the deck being stacked. And, you know, our industry has a long history of having the deck being stacked against us. But it does seem a little bit more extreme right now. And I think your model is good because what it does is it points out that Google and other large corporations are actually taking the money that they've made and using it to fund these PR campaigns, which are accusing the music industry of doing stuff like stifling innovation and limiting people's freedoms when we say we actually just want the right, which we should have, to consent or not consent to where we put our music and you know how much the rate is for the music that we 
if we agree to sell it, you know, we get a, a chance to have a free market conversation about the rate. And I think I'd like to stress that that's still our point about YouTube is that it's not so much that, you know, that, oh, yes, they came up with this content ID system and so now everything's okay, which is kind of their argument. But for us, it's like, well, if we don't have the right to say yes or no in the very beginning, we don't have a right to set a fair market value. It, do, it sort of co-opts that whole part of that. It really does. And, and the thing about it is that they're not being 100% honest about their content ID systems. And they, the content ID system has some value and it does work, but it, doesn't, it isn't applied to all the music that appears on YouTube. And the MCNs, the multi-channel networks, aren't subjected to it. And so, uh, you know, although they're sort of approved vendors, as it were, and they allegedly, you know, sort of honest, straightforward citizens, you know, it turns out that not all the music that's on the MCNs is actually, you know, legally approved. It's not licensed. So, you know, but the bottom line is, is that if it's your music, if you make it, if you own it, you should have the right to decide how it's used. You should have the right to not, have it be up anywhere or have it be up everywhere, however you want. You know, one of the points that some people often point out is, well, some musicians love YouTube because they build their careers off of it and it's really great promotion for them. And, you know, the answer to that is extremely simple. So let them continue to do that. You know, if, if an artist, if a label thinks there's value in having the music out there for free at any point in time, there's nothing to stop them doing that. But it should be the owner's choice. It should be the creator's choice and the owner's choice to make it available or not make it available. And that should always be true. You know, it should, it, it should be true in the beginning when you first put it out. And it should be true mid-career. You could, you could suddenly decide as an artist, you know, that stuff doesn't represent what I am doing now as an artist and I want to withdraw it. And you should be able to withdraw it, in my opinion. Absolutely. You know, I think that the creator should have absolute absolute control over their creation. Absolutely. And we see that all the time in our business. You know, we have artists who say to us, we want all of our stuff up on Spotify. And then we'll have, for example, and then just the other day we had an artist say, you know something, we want to take everything that we have off of Spotify for a while and see how it affects physical sales. And then we said, okay. Right. You know, I mean, that's what artists should be allowed to do. Absolutely. Yeah. There's no question in my mind. And, 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 and when you compare music to any other, I hate to use the word product. And as I say in the op-ed, I don't like the word content either. Unfortunately, content and product sometimes are the easiest way to refer to music, but I prefer to call it music because that's what it is. And it's a labor of love. And there's lots of you know, effort goes into writing songs and producing records and lots of costs go into writing songs and producing records and, and marketing them as well. So, you know, but any other comparable, you know, if, you, if you're selling coffee, if you're selling bread, if you're selling cars, whatever, you know, there's a cost. And if, any, if, if somebody suddenly came out with a machine that could duplicate Mercedes, you know, it would be banned tomorrow. But, <laughs> you know, you know but, but, but for music, somehow it's considered to be okay. And, and I'm watching friends of mine who've had, you know, some of whom have had incredible careers in the music industry and done very well, and now they're struggling to make a living. And, and they're having hit records still, 
it's not like they're not having hit records. It's not like their career is tailing off in the sense of they're writing songs that aren't relevant anymore or producing records that aren't relevant anymore. They're right. They're still writing songs that people love and that go to the top of the charts, but the money that they're seeing coming in is not comparable or, and it's not even livable really at this point. So what do you think ultimately, I mean, just speculatively, you know, we're, we're basically describing what you're describing here in this article is, is an uphill battle that we're facing in the music industry because really going up against Google and these huge corporations is, is very daunting. What do you think it's going to take for us to have some successes? Do you think it's going to be the artists speaking out or, or what? I think the artists do need to speak out. I mean, you know, I, I get into talks with Google and, and, and YouTube and, and they kind of, they get pretty upset with me, but I say to them, look, I'm just the messenger. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you what is being said at the artist level and at the label level. I'm just communicating the feelings. It's not about, I mean, if, if it was only me that cared, you know, it really wouldn't <laughs> matter, you know, but it's not only me, it's, it's the entire industry. And, and artists are often afraid to speak out because they, they fear that it's going to affect their careers. But we've seen artists speaking out recently because this is a pretty unsurvivable scenario that we're facing right now. I think that it's most likely not going to be a legislative solution because our Congress doesn't get very much done. And I doubt that it's going to be a legal solution because it's pretty hard to sue a company as big as YouTube. I think, though, that YouTube, I hope, I believe, <laughs> I wish that YouTube and Google's parent company and Alphabet, I guess, the ultimate parent company, would suddenly see that this is not, this is a kind of a stain on their reputation. You know, I, I think that Google does a lot of incredible things. And, you know, they invest in a lot of very positive ventures. And I would hope that somewhere down the line they would see that damaging the creative community, the, the music creative community, but it's not just the music creative community, it's also other communities as well. I mean, journalists have been hurt, the authors have been hurt. Uh, it, it's not ultimately a good thing for society. You know, America's music culture alone, apart from the movies and the books and everything else that's come out of America, have really put America in a very strong position in the world. I mean, you know, you know, people look at America very admiringly because of our musical culture and everything else, you know, the movies and the books and so on. And I, I can see a time when there isn't going to be much happening, and, but, I, but that's going to be the whole world because this is a global situation as well. So what's going to happen? I mean, are we going to just kind of you know, go back to a sort of an amateur system where you can only make music as a part-time, as a hobby. That, that's what I'm concerned about. Right. And it, and it's, and it is funny. I feel like we're getting hammered in so many directions, you know, the consent decree thing for songwriters and publishers and, you know, everything that's happening on the label and artist side. It does seem like a particularly difficult time for us. But. Well, and, and, but, and that's an important point, and you pointed it out before, is that we do seem to be getting hammered in different directions, but when you look, it's all, it, it's all really part of the same thing. I mean, the fact that that, that judge was somebody who'd represented Google in the past, you know, and you can start to see, you know, that there's, there's a commonality here, there's a common factor. And obviously, it's very attractive to be able to supply something that everybody wants for free so that they willingly go in there and type all their personal information and and give away, you know, tons of information about what they like to do and how they like to do it and everything, and then be able to monetize that information. And, you know, if you can't give it away for free, then you limit 
your ability to gather that information because you know probably not you're probably not going to wind up with seven billion people in the world on a subscription service, but at the same time, the music industry can't survive. So I feel like you know Google, YouTube has to decide that either they're going to move to some kind of subscription model or they're going to take some of their profits and feed that back to the musicians and artists that are supplying the catnip for consumers. Exactly. And on that note, Richard, thank you so much for joining us once again on The Future of What? Thank you so much, Portia. I very much appreciate it. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Red Cabin, Shoo Shoo, and of course our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Anna McLean and Will Watts. I'm Portia Saban, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. Can I have a taste of your ice cream?